0: In the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, we have come to the third Sunday in Lent, not halfway to, quite halfway to Calvary. Two weeks ago, I spoke about repentance using David's Psalm 32 as the basis for that meditation. And last week, Vicar Brinkert focused on the Three serpents suggested by Jesus' words in John 3 that draw our attention to faith alone, sola fide, that gift of the Holy Spirit by which we obtain salvation. Today, our text from Romans chapter 5 invites us to get down to the nuts and bolts, the basics of our faith. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that gives this peace? God's declaration, you are righteous. It's not some legal fiction. God is not play acting in some theatrical presentation of divine justice, no. This is his verdict concerning you, your life, and the prelude to sentencing. It is the article of justification. Historically, for Lutherans, the article on which the church stands or falls. But we've started with the verdict. We must go back and hear the court record of how we got here. What could possibly warrant such a verdict? Verses 6 through 8, the last paragraph of your reading, focuses in on the nuts and bolts, the mechanics, if you will, of our justification, our salvation from eternal death. And Paul begins with a painful assessment of our condition. For while we were still weak, the ungodly, while we were still sinners, this is who we are. Not a flattering picture. This is not the way we describe ourselves when introductions are being made or when we're working up a resume. But before we shine a light on our own lives, let's start with an Old Testament example of weak, ungodly, and sinful. Let's start with a case that came before the divine docket concerning a vineyard outside of Samaria. Ahab's throne stood in Samaria from which he ruled over Israel. Ahab coveted this vineyard, not for its vines or the wine that it produced. It was location, that first rule of real estate. It was adjacent to his house and he wanted it so he could plant a vegetable garden. Naboth, the vineyard's owner, refused to either sell or to exchange his vineyard for one of greater value because it was his inheritance. Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers, he exclaims. Presumably, the land had been in his house since the days of Joshua, when God divided the land by tribes and clans and families. Ahab demonstrates his weakness. He, quote, went into his house vexed and sullen, He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. The king of Israel pouted like a four-year-old. Then, in his weakness, he listened to the ungodly counsel of Jezebel, his wife. She concocts a scheme to frame Naboth by false witnesses to get him stoned using the authority of the throne. It works. Injustice is served. And she proudly announces Naboth's demise. Ahab proves himself to be a sinner. He, quote, Arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and to take possession of it. Weak, ungodly, a sinner. God sends Elijah to confront him in judgment. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. The word of the Lord. Well, there are no Israelite kings here, I realize that. But the story of Ahab is the story about the the nuts and bolts, the cross-threaded nuts and bolts of our lives. Where is your weakness? If not the vineyard of Naboth, then what? Perhaps with the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. I'm reminded of this as we settle Mary Jane into her new home at Kilchis House. I'm not seeking any glory here for that. Rather, I'm confessing my weakness, particularly my weakness loading another last load with the trailer. Luther is very helpful here in this large catechism. His treatment of the fourth commandment is almost twice as long as any of the other nine, 11 pages worth. Three important lessons come to the surface. First, what does God mean to honor our parents? Luther suggests honor includes not only love, but also deference, humility, and modesty, directed, so to speak, toward a majesty concealed within him. But above all, to show by our action, both of heart and body, that we respect them very highly, and that next to God, we give them the very highest place. Close quote. Forgive us our weakness, O Lord. But the fourth commandment does not reach its limit with the nuclear family. In fact, it is the authority of fathers and mothers that form the basis for all civil authority. Luther goes on, all who are called masters stand in the place of parents and must derive from them their power and authority to govern. They are called fathers in the scriptures because in their sphere of authority they've been commissioned as fathers and ought to have fatherly hearts towards their people. We may catch a little room for critique of good government in Luther's tone, but when we stand before the civil court, we also stand before the heavenly bar of justice. So our capacity for weakness is evident as we chafe under any authority, but what really strikes home is the way Luther names our sinfulness. Ahab listened to the ungodly counsel of his wife, We have become our own ungodly counsel. Luther asks, Why do you think the world is now so full of unfaithfulness, shame, misery, and murder? It is because all want to be their own lords, to be free of all authority, to care nothing for anyone, and to do whatever they please. So God punishes one scoundrel by means of another, so that when you defraud or despise your Lord, another person comes along and treats you likewise. Close quote. Weak, ungodly, sinful. The cross threaded bolts, nuts and bolts of our lives. Or perhaps your weakness lies with another commandment, the sixth you shall not commit adultery. The commandment springs to mind as we hear the confession of the woman of Sychar I have no husband. And Jesus' biting reply You are right saying you have no husband. You've had five of them, and the one you got now is not your husband. She stood convicted before the judge of all creation, though she did not realize it at the time. In our day, the breakdown of morality appears constantly before us in the media and popular entertainment. It marches through the streets of our cities and loudly demands recognition on street corners. For our part, the presence of pornography just a few clicks away constantly coerces the ungodly counsel of our flesh. But our weakness may be even more evident in our silence. Our failure to be a clear voice for the joys of sexuality within the marriage bond as God created us, male and female. Cross-threaded nuts and bolts is certainly an appropriate way to describe our world, our lives. Weak, ungodly, sinners. We sometimes hear the story of Ahab and jump too quickly from Elijah's harsh words of judgment as we heard earlier to the ignoble demise of Jezebel in 2 Kings 9 as she's thrown from the window and her flesh is eaten by the dogs. When we do that, we skip over. We miss Ahab's response. Quote, When Ahab heard these words, the words of Elijah, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted. And Yahweh heard his confession. He asks Elijah, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the disaster in his days. Standing before the heavenly bar, we did well earlier this morning to confess our weakness, our ungodliness, our sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. Yet we are not in a courtroom, but a church. Here we remember the greatest injustice ever committed. The words, the final words of each of our last three verses of our text drive home the point Christ died for the ungodly. One would even dare to die. Christ died for us. These are the nuts and bolts of our faith, the article of justification. Go to dark Gethsemane. Listen as Jesus prays. My Father, if it be thy possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See the disciples asleep three times. And then the silence is broken by a band of soldiers with Judas at the head. A kiss. The bitterly ironic betrayal complete. Peter, a sword. And healing, even in the midst of injustice served. Jesus is hustled off to the house of the high priest. A highly illegal court is hastily assembled. Conflicting testimony is heard to no end. Finally, Jesus is charged with blasphemy and taken to Pilate as the rooster crows. The sky betrays the dawn. More grandstanding demands. And finally, injustice is served. Pilate washes his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And so it would be. Injury is added to injustice as the soldiers make sport of him and lead him out and crucify him. I am not one for Christian bookstore sentimentality. In fact, I avoid the places. But I make an exception for a poster I found on the Internet this week. It shows a reasonably accurate picture, image, of the crucifixion, over which is printed this question. I asked Jesus, How much do you love me? And underneath the answer... He stretched out his hands as far as they would go, and he died. The nuts and bolts of justification. Christ died for you. Justice was served when Jesus died. God's justice, my sin, your sin, could not go unpunished. Our weakness could not be ignored. Our ungodliness could not be overlooked. So God placed them all on Jesus. The strong, godly, sinless Son of Man died in our place. Notice how Paul summarizes it. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God. God has declared us righteous because of Christ's death on our behalf. You are redeemed. This love of God, Paul announces, is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Water pours throughout our readings this morning. Water from the rock in Exodus 17, which is Christ. The living water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life, as Jesus explains to the woman at the well. We are reminded of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit, the same Spirit that was poured into us in the water of baptism that declares, you are mine. The strong Godly, sinless Son of Man. Our Lord Jesus Christ has brought us, the weak, ungodly, sinners that we are, peace with God. It is a real peace, not as the world understands peace. Luther wrote about it this way Whatever fear still assails us is either a temptation of Satan or the remnant of the old man. For in Christ there can be nothing but supreme assurance. And joy. We come to his table again this morning to receive that assurance of sin forgiven, to taste the body and blood of salvation. But it is perhaps Paul who summarizes that piece that comes with the nuts and bolts of our faith, this article of justification, best in his letter to the Church of Philippi. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.